All right, if you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, we're going to start in Acts chapter 15, then we'll journey through a few other places in the New Testament, and then we're going to get to that half sheet of paper that you have in front of you. If you did not get one of the note sheets as we came in, those are available on the back table. Feel free, you're not going to disrupt anybody. Just go back there and grab one of those or send somebody to get one for you. And, and we'll begin to, to look at those here in just a minute. So we'll start in Acts 15. We're going to jump to a couple of other places. Um, we're continuing our, our study on the Bible, authority, and what it means to live in a world that's skeptical of authority, especially religious authority. What do you mean that the Bible has authority over your life or that the Bible would have authority over the church? Um, who really believes in an old book written so long ago? We've been abused by spiritual authorities. How could you ever hold up a book like that and say that it's the Word of God? We've been working through those things. And so talking about what does it mean that the Bible is true and that it's divine and that it's good and it's understandable, all those sort of things. Last week we talked about the history of the Bible. How can I know that what I hold in front of me matches what was written, what was given by God to the apostles and the prophets. How can I know that what I have? And so we looked at the history of it. This week, we're going to talk about if the Bible is the Word of God, if we believe that it's true, that it's sufficient for salvation and for holiness and it satisfies our souls, then why do we have things like confessions or creeds or covenants? Why not just have the Bible? Why do you have other things in, involved there? And so Wrapped into that idea is the fact that this is the 500th anniversary of what's sometimes called the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so you had this idea of a guy named Martin Luther who was becoming very frustrated about some things that were happening in the established church, and the established Catholic church at the time. And so he nailed these papers to the door and said, this is where I stand. I stand on the Word of God. It was about making the Word of God available to the people uh, that we trust in Christ alone for salvation, not our works, all these things wrapped up in that. So sometimes when we talk about the Reformation, one of the things that comes out of that is the idea of sola scriptura, okay? So sola is S-O-L-A there. The Bible, the scripture above all. Here's what I want you to think about tonight. Sola, S-O-L-A, that the Bible is above all, is not the same thing as solo scriptura, S-O-L-O, the Bible alone. So what we are holding up is that the Word of God is sufficient for salvation. You do not need any other word in your life to bring salvation. Sufficient for salvation. The Word of God is sufficient to make us holy. It does that work in our lives as we read and we understand and we grow. You don't need anything else other than the Word of God. So the Word of God is above all, but it doesn't mean at that moment that we can only have those words, that we don't learn from and benefit and profit from other things that point to Scripture. And so that's the connection we're going to begin to make tonight, because what you have is you have all this church history that's built up over time. You have all the ways that we learn from other believers, both in history and around the world. You have these confessions and creeds and covenants. Do we really need those? Do we need them? No. 
Is there a place for them? Yes, I think there is. And so we're going to kind of work toward that tonight. What does it mean to have these other things? So that takes us to Acts chapter 15. So we're trying to think of the difference between sola and solo is, is what we're getting at. And I think you'll see it as we get going. So start in Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and all the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to, for them to keep the law of Moses. So now we're in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Oops, lost my place. And after, in verse 7, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So they begin to talk about this, and then jump down to verse 19. So in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from that what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good, in verse 22, to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And then it begins to talk about the letter that they sent. Okay, so here's the, what we're seeing from that story. There's a point of debate and discussion that comes up that threatens to divide the church. They're dividing over this question of, do these Gentiles, which and unless you come from a Jewish background, I'm not aware of it, probably all of us here are fit in that category of Gentiles, unless you follow the laws of Moses, then you can't be saved. Well, very quickly, these early believers realized, uh, that's not how it works. That's not what Jesus did in coming to die for us, that we're not saved by keeping these works, these laws, we're, we're saved by faith in Christ. And so they meet together, and they come to some understanding of how this should work. They unify as a church, they write out a letter, and then they send it with delegates so it goes around and explains this is what the church believes about this matter. That kind of sets a precedence for how things will continue to go throughout the time of the church is we want to be able to gather together and say, this is what we believe about this particular issue. This is what we believe not just because of our own opinion. This is what we believe the Word of God says. And then it's put together and it represents the beliefs of the church. And then it's taken out so that it's able to solve these questions that, that come up. Let me give you some other examples. So you go further in your New Testament. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
So we're going to move ahead past almost to the very end of, uh, of Paul's letters there to 1 Timothy. We're going to read a couple of verses in 1 Timothy and then a couple in, in 2 Timothy. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, in verse 6, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. I mean, worthless debate about things. They're desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul is concerned about these people that are coming along and saying that they're a teacher of the things of Jesus, but they're talking about things they don't know what mean. Uh, what's this all really all about? So they're spreading these ideas. They're just speculations. They're not based on any doctrine or truth. Go ahead to 2 Timothy. So skip over a couple of pages or scroll down your phone. Listen to some of the things that Paul says. 2 Timothy is written at the very end of his life. Listen to a couple of things that Paul says here at the very end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So there are certain teachings that have been given to Timothy, and Paul says, guard those, hold on to those. Other places in Scripture talks about the faith once delivered to the saints. This teaching that was passed on, hold on and protect that and then pass it on to others. Skip down to chapter 3 in 2 Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy 3 verse 7 talks about those who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And then it talks about Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses so these men also oppose the truth. They're corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And then in chapter 4, you get a pretty famous passage at the beginning of 2 Timothy 4. Paul's telling Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, I charge you, in verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry so you see this pattern that happens all throughout Scripture of the Word of God being passed down generation to generation, being protected, passed on, received, protected, passed on, received. This is a pattern that begins to develop. In the early church, you get something that appears, and this is the very early stages of the church, you get something that appears that's called the rule of faith. 
the rule of faith is probably most famously connected to a man named Irenaeus, who was one of the early church leaders. But what develops with the rule of faith is it functions almost like a summary of Scripture, so to speak. And so this was taught to the people so that when they heard teaching or they heard preaching, they would be able to filter it out and know, is this heresy or does this really match Scripture? Um, one of the things, let me give you a description that one, one author gave about the rule of faith. Where Irenaeus is talking about the need for people to have a way to understand Scripture he says, aware of the futility of arguing with heretics on the base of Scripture alone, whose meaning they could twist, he appealed to the rule of faith, which has been preserved intact in the church since the days of the apostles. So here's what was happening. People were having these games that are still played today, where someone takes one Bible verse and means one thing by it, <laughs> And another person comes along and takes the same Bible verse and maybe uses the same exact words, but means something entirely different by it. And so Irenaeus and these early church leaders were getting in arguments with people about what these verses meant, and they were both using the same verses. Uh, if you've ever been in a situation like this, you found yourself maybe having theological discussions or just outright arguments or debates or something with somebody, and you feel like you're saying the same thing, but you're just talking right past them. A, a lot of religious groups that aren't healthy are built up using the exact same words that you might find in Scripture, using the exact same words that we might use, but they mean by them completely different things. And so what is developed is this teaching called the rule of faith. Rule meaning like a ruler. It, it, it was something that you could test it by. You could determine is what is being taught here, does it match the faith that we have that comes from Christ? And so this idea of the rule of faith. Following the rule of faith, you run into something that's being developed that's called the Apostles' Creed. Did anybody grow up in a church where you recited the Apostles' Creed on Sunday? Okay, so we have two of us, three of us maybe. Uh, we're just such hardcore Southern Baptist people. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So we have a few people here that have grown up in churches where you recited, recited the Apostles' Creed. On the back of your page, um, down at the bottom of, of some verses there that we'll get to in a minute, I printed out the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed developed in, in different stages. So what you have now on your page here that a lot of churches will recite on Sundays really didn't appear until about the 8th century but there were versions of this that go back to as early as the 3rd century and begin to develop. Uh, following the Apostles' Creed, you get a famous meeting of the church leaders that's called the Council at Nicaea. This is early 4th century, probably around 325 A.D. or so. You have the Council of Nicaea, and they developed the Nicene Creed. Uh, some churches today will still print the Nicene Creed. You might find it in the pew back if you go to certain churches and you're reading through there. So the Nicene Creed developed. You had these creeds that developed that were meant to pass on or teach. This is what the church says about this. So hold on to this. Reject something that doesn't, that doesn't follow this. Why is this such a big deal? Well, in the back of your paper, there at the top, Acts 17.11, talks about these people that lived in a place called Berea. It says, Acts 17, 11 says, Now these Jews were more normal, or normal. <laughs> well, that works too, so uh, sorry. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. So if you'll turn your paper over one more time to what amounts to the front side. We'll start going through this. If the Bible is authoritative and sufficient, what is the role of creeds, confessions, catechisms, and covenants? Um, First, a couple of dangers about these things. The first is there's always a danger that these sort of documents or writings would replace Scripture instead of pointing to Scripture. The whole point of having a confession or a creed or a covenant that you come around, the whole purpose of that is that it matches the teaching of Scripture, that it's a way in which the doctrine and teaching of Scripture can be passed on or can be summarized. Instead of giving people 66 books, you can give them a one-page outline and say, hey, look at this. This represents what you find in your Bible. Well, the problem is when that creed or confession or covenant becomes a replacement for Scripture. We don't want to go down that road. These are meant to reflect Scripture, to pass on the teaching of the church. Early Baptists, and we're going to talk a little bit of Baptist history. I know we had breakfast for dinner, which is my favorite Wednesday. Actually, that's my favorite meal of all time is breakfast for any meal. But uh, So heavy carbs. Now we're going to talk about Baptist history tonight, which is dangerous, that you would not make it through the night, uh, through the rest of the sermon, uh, with all that food on your stomach. So... Uh, Hang with me, but we're going to talk about Baptist history. Early in Baptist history, Baptists were very hesitant about having these documents because they were afraid that it would replace Scripture, that they would begin to look there. There's so much concern about the history of the Catholic Church that you just listened to whatever the priest said and you never compared it against Scripture, that you just sat there and received this teaching without knowing if it matched the Word of God. So that is a danger, and we're going to be aware of that as we go along. Number two is that these resources would be used to suppress debate or create this unhealthy ecumenism, this idea that can't we all just get along? Why are we having to debate these things? Just believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. Whew, that's a dangerous road to go down. This idea of just, hey, it doesn't really matter who Jesus is. You just kind of do, no, we're not, we're not saying that. <laughs> These creeds and covenants, confessions, they're not meant to say, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. It's not trying to suppress the debate. It's trying to say, let's unify around, around this. A quick flip of your paper to the back, just for a second. I've, I've printed some words, 1 Corinthians, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that second set of verses on the back. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is concerned that the church is unified around Christ, not around a particular teacher or a particular leader. And so that's one of the things we have to be aware of as, as we go on. Okay, flip it back around the front. Let's look at that third danger. So the first danger is that it would replace Scripture. The second danger is that it would repra- replace debate, and it would just be this very general, generic, believe what you want to believe. The third is that these resources would become a leverage for minor, particular agendas. One of the things that's happened in the history of the church, uh, and our Southern Baptist Convention is probably the best illustration of this, example of this, early in Southern Baptist life, 
before there was a, such a thing called Southern Baptists, or really just as Baptists were developing back in the 17th century, you had two groups. You had the particular Baptist, and you had the general Baptist. Um, now, the per- term particular Baptist just calls for a joke of, of some cor- sort about how Baptist people act, that they're very particular. But the point is that the particular Baptist were more of the Calvinistic Baptists, if that word means anything to you. Uh, this idea of predestination um, was a big deal on this one side. And so there you had the particular Baptists. The general Baptists were more, if this word means anything to you, they were more of what we might call the Arminian Baptists, uh, a little more free will. So from the very beginning days of Baptist life, you had the particular Baptists, and guess what? They had their confessions. And guess what their confessions pushed? No, they pushed Calvinism as, as a teaching, this idea of predestination. Then you had the general Baptists over here, and they had their confessions. Guess what their confessions pushed? Well, they can push free will and this more Arminian. And so from the very beginning, you had this. And so when the groups began to come together and form a common body, they had to figure out how are we going to express our beliefs in such a way that matches Scripture, but it's wide enough that we can all fit under this tent which is the challenge for every group to say, how do we write something that says this matches Scripture, and at the same time, it's wide enough that we can all fit under the tent, recognizing that we have disagreements about particular things. Confessions, creeds, covenants are meant to unite more than they're meant to divide. They're meant to be clear delineations of this is what our tent looks like. This is how big our tent is. And if you believe these things, in some respect, you fit under that. So this is the idea that's happening there. Which takes us back to the front. Why do we have these? What are the benefits of them? Well, to the point that I was just making, this idea of unity or Catholicity, I don't know your background. Some of us may have a a Catholic background in here. Uh, I'm not sure. Remember that the term Catholic, we normally associate with kind of the broader Roman Catholic Church, but the word Catholic just means universal. This idea of a totality that all people together. The word Catholic is a real, it's avoided because it comes with all these connotations maybe of just certain religious backgrounds. But the word Catholic is a good, healthy word to hold on to. It's a word that Christians should use because it refers to the, the, the universal scope of the church, that we have a Catholic one holy Catholic church is sometimes used in, in certain uh, creeds. I think it's even used, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, uh, you're going to be great. If, you're actually going to be able to fan yourself as much as we're flipping the, uh, the page back and forth. But uh, if you look at the very bottom of the Apostles' Creed on the back of your page, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church there. It's talking about all believers who are part of Christ's church. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And then it goes on to talk about the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. So you have that idea that one of the benefits of these creeds and confessions is that it brings unity to a group of people. Underneath unity on on the front of your page there, it reminds us that we need to learn from others in history. C.S. Lewis was famous for talking about something that he called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery means that whatever came most recent must be better. So you end up devaluing the past and you put all your emphasis on what came most recent. Well, you know if you read certain books, 
just because a book came recent doesn't mean it's better than the old books. <laughs> you begin to go back and you find things from days gone by and you realize people weren't dumb back then. They didn't just learn about Jesus yesterday. The, the work of God, the teaching of God has been going on for, for generations. And so if we're not careful, and I'd say we, and particularly my generation, and particularly churches that we're a part of, you know, whatever new becomes trendy, and we, we grab onto that, and we forget that we are a part of a church that has been passed down from the apostles, that comes from the teaching of Jesus through the apostles, passed down through the church. And so confessions and creeds, one of the things they do is they tie us to the past in a really healthy way. Uh, they provide us that connection. They also remind us that we need to learn from others in the world, uh, that in this part of America, in this part of the world, we're not the only people thinking about the things of the Lord, that, that there's something unifying, there's something Catholic about the Christian faith that's supposed to bring all of us together to say, this is what we believe, this is where we stand. And then also, just the humility of certain core truths, while we do what 1 Corinthians says, where it says we see through a glass darkly, but one day we'll see face to face. When we're holding on to these confessions, we're, we're holding on to them humbly. <laughs> we're saying we want as best as we can to portray what Scripture teaches, recognizing that these are human words that we're using to try to, try to summarize this. So they're meant to unify. The second is these resources can be great teaching tools. Um, they're really the simplest form of commentary that we have. They're taking these theological topics and, and explaining it. This is the, the reference on number two there we talked about earlier. Sola, not solo scriptura, because we believe in preaching. Uh, so one of the things that the Protestant Reformation did is it brought preaching back into style, this idea that you would stand up and expose the Word of God. Contrary to what you might want on Sunday morning, I don't just stand up and read Scripture. Uh, you may want me to end after I just read Scripture, and we could all go home. But that's not how preaching works. You stand up and you read the Scripture, you present the Scripture, and then, to use kind of a churchy word, you expound on it. You explain it. You say, hey, here's kind of what it means. Let me give you an illustration of that. Let me tell you how that might apply to your life. Well, what have I done? I've used a lot of words in addition to the Bible's words to try to reflect what the Bible said. Could you have stood up and just read the Scripture? Yes, but it wouldn't have been preaching. It wouldn't have explained it. It wouldn't have said it before the people. And so things like confessions, creeds, covenants, they're meant to set the Word of God before the people in a way that can be understood, in a way that can be applied to your life. And so to say, well, I only need Scripture, yes, but is that how God's Word has come to us? What does it mean to receive the Word of God, to be taught the Word of God, to be preached the Word of God? And so very few people who say, I only need Scripture, mean do I really only need Scripture. We want Scripture, and we want to have Scripture explained in a way that we can understand and apply, apply to our lives. Uh, this idea of only having Scripture means that when you're at your job, I want you reading the documents reflected at your job. Uh, if you're going to work on my car, I don't want you reading the Bible at that point. If you're going to do surgery on me, I don't want you reading the Bible to get to the instructions for surgery. This is the idea that not every thought during your day is going to be about the Bible, but every thought during your day should be biblical. So not everything we think about is going to be a particular words from the Bible, 
but the Bible should shape and frame and direct how we think about everything during the day. It's sola scriptura. Scripture guides our life, but it's not solo. When you go to work, read what they put in front of you. Allow that to guide what you do at work. Over top of all of that, though, is, is Scripture. So that's kind of the distinction that happens there. Um, number three, under teaching tool, these resources that we're going to talk about, they help us avoid vague, abstract principles. Uh, sometimes we just be so general it's not helpful, and, and we need language to hold on to. Do we know what we mean by the words we use? It's a challenge we all run into. You, you throw words around, and then you realize, man, I'm not sure what I, I, I grew up in church knowing I was supposed to use that word, but if forced to explain that word, I'm kind of at a loss. And, and so these resources allow us to have other words that allow us to explain and understand some of these things. And then this next thing, when we talk creation to Christ, it provides a narrative overview to Scripture. So we want to be able to explain the story of the Bible, and we talked about this several weeks ago. These creeds and confessions, they kind of provide a theological overview. If you're providing these explanations of doctrine, you can sit down with someone, and instead of taking all the time it would take to read the 66 books of the Bible, you can say, hey, let's, let's sit down and look at the Apostles' Creed together. This is something that was developed in the early church that kind of summarized what the Bible says about the teachings of, of Jesus, and you can use that as a, as a connection point there. So what are, what are we talking about when I'm using all these C words? Well, the first thing is we talk about these creeds. The, probably the two most famous creeds are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Apostles' Creed probably becoming coming first but not developed in its full form until later. The Nicene Creed coming there in the 4th fourth, fourth century. I want us to do something together. I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, but I, but I think it's a good practice. Turn your page over again. I want us to read the Apostles' Creed together. This may bring memories back for some of you, or I hope it doesn't come across as sacrilegious. I mean this to be a good, a good unifying experience for us. But if you've never been a part of a gathered worship service when they read the Apostles' Creed, uh, this will give you a little bit of feel for, uh, for what it sounds like. So let's, let's read. Um, and when I say believe, just jump in and start reading right there along with me. I believe... In God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So what that's designed to do is that when you read that and gather worship, we're saying together that's what we believe about Scripture, that that's a summary of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so these creeds are uh, often used as worship in different, different places. So. so that's one option, creeds. The second is confessions. Baptists have been very, very careful to distinguish confessions from creeds. 
we've considered creeds to be more binding than a confession. Uh, a confession is kind of a looser sort of document, I guess you could say. There's debate about that, but, but historically Baptists have been very clear. We don't have a creed, we have a confession, and we're just playing with words there. Maybe, uh, but but it's kind of the way the way that it's functioned. So, when you think about the Baptist uh, confession, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, you have something called the Baptist Faith and Message. Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message is developed in various forms. It, it started in 1925 with a document that was produced there, and, and that document was designed to let Southern Baptists connect with Baptists historically uh, and and Baptists around the world came from an earlier Philadelphia confession that was established back in the 18th century, so you have a tie-in there with, with Baptist life. I would be more than happy to uh, let you borrow my, my copy of Baptist Heritage if you would like to read about Baptist life. So, uh, Roxy, you have a copy of Baptist Heritage? Yeah, Roxy has a copy as well that she'd be glad to, uh, to loan out to you as well. So, if you want to learn about Baptist history... It really is fascinating to, to read through and see how, see how some of this developed. But Baptist Faith and Message was in 1925, tweaked it a little bit in 1963. Uh, you had a form that came up in, in 1963, and then more recently in 2000, it, it was updated again. With every update came controversy and confusion and things like that, but it still serves as kind of a unifying document. If you ever want to say, Hey, what do Baptists believe about X? It's a place to go back and find an explanation of that. Uh, coming up in a, in a couple of weeks, November 13th and 14th, is the state Southern Baptist meeting uh, at Quell Springs Baptist Church up on the north side of Oklahoma City. And so I was assigned this year to be a part of what's called the Resolutions Committee. When Baptists meet on the national level or the state level, we release these things called resolutions, like we, the messengers, gathered at this convention, hereby appreciate Dr. Anthony Jordan for 22 years of service to Oklahoma Baptist. Like, that's one of the things that we have. So we have these resolutions we put out because when the Daily Oklahoman calls the State Baptist office and asks Dr. Jordan, hey, what do Baptists believe about X, and lays something out, Either Dr. Jordan has to speak solo, but on behalf of all Baptists gathered in the state of Oklahoma, or we have some sort of document we put together that says this is what we believe about this particular issue. It's a lot better for Dr. Jordan when there's already a resolution that is, is developed. So you have two opportunities here. The first is our church is able to send some messengers to the, to the state meeting to, to participate in it. So we have nine cards that we can give out. If you are interested, I'm kind of making light of this, but I don't mean to because it's, it's a really serious matter. If you would like to go and take a part in the state meeting, maybe you haven't done that before, let me know afterward and I'll get you one of these fancy cards. You don't have to be a messenger to go. You just can't participate in debate and discussion and voting and that, that type of thing. Um, you can't stand up to vote to approve the things that I wrote earlier this week for, for the state. So, uh, but this little card will, will allow you to, to do that. So, or you can come to support me because this last summer at Phoenix where we had our national meeting, there's a resolution put forward regarding uh, white supremacy and racism that caused a whole lot of uh, uh, controversy. It made some of the big news outlets and things like that. 
well, we have a resolution we're putting forward for the state of Oklahoma this year regarding that issue. And after you finish the meeting, when you put these resolutions together, they assign who's going to present the resolution. If you present the resolution, you have to answer questions that are presented about, you can see where this is going, can't you? Uh, resolutions. So they go around the table and they say, oh, and you look like the youngest one here. Well, I am by, by far. We think you should present the resolution about white supremacy, the alt-right, and racism, and our response to that, which means you can answer any questions that are asked from the floor about this particular resolution and, and what we believe about this topic. So, we'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how that goes. We're, we're hoping it passes with no controversy and that my name doesn't show up in the paper and you have to read about it the uh, the next day. So my goal that whole day is just to stay off the uh, evening news, if, if I can possibly do it. But we, we have these confessions, we have these resolutions to come together and say this is what we believe about things. Um, under confessions, there's also something that was just released last month uh, called the Reforming Catholic Confession. This was actually developed in part by some guys out at OBU. They were involved in it as well and, and several other people. But it's just another attempt to kind of update uh, some things related to what, not, not, not what just Southern Baptists believe, but what do Christians in general believe. Catechisms, has anyone used a catechism, either learning it as a child or used it as an adult with your children? Anybody admit to catechism use? Okay, we're doing a little better. We're up to like six people, seven people on, on that. Probably the most famous uh, catechism, some of it depends on your religious background, Probably the most famous are what are called the Westminster Catechism. There's a longer and a shorter. You definitely want to do the shorter if you get the option. Um, there's the longer and the shorter. That has been updated into a form called the New City Catechism, a great resource with kids. Uh, it comes with a really cool app and a good training tool for your kids or grandkids if you ever want to, uh, to look into that. Not a warning, but just a heads up. Catechisms tend to come from more of a Presbyterian-style background. So some of the catechisms, when you get to questions about baptism, if you don't believe in infant baptism, you want to read ahead and find out whether or not that particular catechism endorses infant baptism or kind of takes more general uh, approach to it. Also related to the way the church is put together, sometimes the catechisms come from a different perspective. But once again, in, in large part, they're really good, really good teaching tools. And then the, the last option, as we kind of run out of time here, are these covenants that churches will make. Oftentimes, a covenant is more of an ethical document than it is a theological document. It's saying, this describes how we're agreeing to live together as God's people. When we update, updated uh, a few weeks ago our Constitution and Bylaws for Emmaus, it included an updated covenant that 95% reflected the old one we had, but just made a couple of, of generalized updates, trying to, to make it as understandable as possible. So churches have covenants that they agree, this is how we're going to live. This is what's going to shape our lives. What's the point in all this? Is it that you would go out and read every confession, creed? No, it's not. Ultimately, the goal is that you'd be pointed back to Scripture. But as you do that, you would then be able to turn around and explain that scripture to others. 
So how am I going to learn to explain the scripture to others? Well, oftentimes I need other resources. Where am I going to find those other resources? I don't have time, Owen, to take a theology class at college. And frankly, I don't have the skill level or the money. or any, I just don't want to do that. But I do understand that theology is important. How in the most basic way do you learn theology? Well, I would be glad if you would like to loan you this. If you'd like this or a couple other versions of this, I could loan this to you. Or creeds, confessions, catechisms, those, frankly, get you to the same place as those other resources. They provide a theological framework. I'm trying to think through how can we do a better job of this as a church, as a dad. I'm trying to think about how do I do a better job of this with my kids, with their theological training, always pointing back to Scripture. Sola Scriptura, the Bible above all. The Bible is sufficient for faith, sufficient for holiness, sufficient to satisfy our soul. But we have these other resources to come along saying, this is what we believe about God's Word. All right, let's pray together. we got to go. Father, thank you for the time together. Thank you for a church that gathers around your Word. I know some of the things we talked about tonight could seem a little bit academic, and I don't mean that at all. All of this is meant to drive us back to worship all of this is meant to drive us back to your word. As we try to explain what we believe, as we try to come together as a church and say, what do we believe about these issues? God, that these, these documents would, would be helpful in that regard. And always for the purpose of then being able to share that with others. Being able to share that with our kids and our grandkids. Being able to share that with neighbors, coworkers, when they come up and ask what we believe about particular things. God, that we would have a handle on these things so that ultimately we're able to share the good news of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks again for being here. God bless you all.